Well, hello, 11 o'clock. How are you today? Doing all right? I just want you to know we power through Saturday and 9 a.m. to get to you. We love you, 11 a.m., so I'm excited for what God has for us. Hey, what I want to do is just pause for a moment. We did this in our other services this weekend, and to just pause and ask God to do something good in our world because there's a lot of hurt and brokenness going on. It's amazing when you just turn on the news and you're just like, there it is, there's our brokenness once more from the shootings in Maine to the ongoing conflict in Israel and Palestine. And so I just want to pray for us. I just invite you to pray with me as we go into this moment and um, and ask that God would show up. So Father, we we come into this place grateful for the the things that you have done, the things that you've given us. yet painfully aware that there is hurt and brokenness in this world. And just this week, we were reminded of it once more. God, we need you to show up. We need you to come and work. We need you to do what only you can do to bring the healing and the hope that we need in this world. Like when we walked away from you at the beginning story as a race, we had no clue what we were doing, and we have broken things, and we continue to experience the pain of that brokenness. So what we need more than anything is for you to show up and come and do what only you can do to bring restoration and hope. And so Jesus, I would just ask that those in the world who are hurting through loss and suffering, this conflict between these two peoples in the Middle East that has been going on for centuries, God, the hurting, loss and suffering there, the families that are reeling from the devastation that took place in Maine, even if they do not know you, Jesus, would they encounter you for who you are? You are the Prince of Peace. And so would you come with hope for them and so we just want to lift up our heart to you and ask that you would bring your healing into the story because we need you. In your name, amen, amen. amen. Well, hey, I'm excited that we are in the second half of Romans. Do you realize that in two weekends, we will have made it through one whole chapter in the book of Romans? Some of you are like, I don't know what he's talking about. Like, so if you, we've been in this series in the book of Romans for quite some time, and we've spent many weeks walking our way through Romans chapter one to help us get to where Paul is taking us, Paul who wrote this letter. And so as we get ready, we're going to see that he's going to be challenging a group of people around this idea of, are they stewarding the privilege God has given them? I don't know if you've ever encountered somebody who has taken something good that God entrusted to them and used it for the sake of other people. I've been a beneficiary of that years ago, a part of our church here uh, when we were just young family, young kids, uh, I was driving and, and I'd hit the brakes on the car and I'd hear this really bad grinding sound. Now, I don't know much about cars, but I know that's not what it's supposed to sound like. And so I remember I went on YouTube to see if I could figure out how to do this. And I realized that the reason I'm on YouTube already tells me I don't have the skills to do this. And so just kind of word of mouth within the context of our church, there's a gentleman named Dave who reached out to me and he's like, hey, Joel, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to the auto parts store. Here's the brakes you need for your car. And then I want you to meet me at my my shop in the valley and we'll take care of it. And I was like, all right, cool. So I show up thinking I'm showing up to an auto shop. And instead I just show up to this industrial park in the valley and he has a printing business. And I'm like, like, what? Like, Dave, like, he's just like, no, like, I, this this skills that I have, like most men have these skills, Joel, but you're okay. Don't worry about it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and so he's like, okay, so like his parked car here, he gets it set up and then he just gets to work. And now I am like eager and keen to learn this skill. So I'm like leaning over his shoulder. Like I, can I just get some of the grease on my hand so I feel masculine in this moment with you? And, and I remember there's this moment as he's in like mid, mid doing breakish things, he stops and he looks at me and he's just very annoyed. And he's like, can you get out of my face, please? And I was like, oh, I just, I wanted to learn from you while you're here. And he's like, why would you need to learn that? I'm here. And he's like, Joe, you need to understand that like God has 
blessed me with my business. God has blessed me with some good things that allow me to take skills that I have and serve other people in our church. He's like, that's what I do. You teach, I do breaks. Now don't take that away from me, right? <laughs> it was just one of those, and I just remember walking away like just feeling so like, like love, so like how amazing this was. And there's something just beautiful and amazing when you see somebody taking the good that they have been given and using it for something greater than themselves when they take their privilege and use it well. Now, I know when we say the word privilege, this is a buzzword in our culture today. It can bring up all sorts of things. Like, and so what I want to do is, is hopefully talk about it from a positive way, because if we're not careful, the baggage of the word, we might miss the point of what we're talking about. So when we talk about privilege, like I'm not referring to it in the way that we might see an entitled person that we might perceive as part of the problem. Or when I talk about privilege, I'm not talking about the guilt that some may have around the privilege they have because others don't share that story. When I talk about privilege, I'm not talking about the bitterness that some may have towards those whom they perceive are privileged. When I'm talking about privilege, I'm not talking about the powerlessness or disenfranchised way some feel because of the way society works. I don't want to discount or dismiss any of that. But what I want to do is take the word privilege and say, what happens when we run privilege through the lens of the gospel? The gospel, the good news of what God has done for us. The good news that God has moved in our story, that he has sent his son into the world, into the mess, into the brokenness to do something for us that we could not do for ourselves so that in Jesus' name we can have new life. I think there's a privilege that we encounter when we encounter Jesus. And so the question on the table is how do we steward that privilege? So I want to give you a a healthy definition of privilege. So this is what I would describe healthy privileges looking like. This is for free for showing up. It's on your notes. So just, you know, write this down. But this is what I think healthy privilege is. Healthy privilege is recognizing that you have been given something good for a purpose greater than yourself. So I love being a dad. I have two amazing teenage daughters. I'm still saying God is good. I love it. And and yet it would be really easy for me to misunderstand why I have them in my life. Like if I lived in another culture, I could approach my daughters from a utilitarian standpoint. Like I just can't wait till I get the money when you get married. Like I I could treat being a dad like that. Our culture maybe doesn't work that way, but I could still say, how do you make my life better? And if I did, I think I'd actually miss the point of being privileged to be dad to these two girls. Like the point of privilege of being entrusted with them is is to do the job the best I know how to help point them to Jesus so that in their own journey, in their own story, they choose to walk with him and follow him as if I'm releasing arrows for the kingdom to come through these two. My privilege is to set them up and serve them and steward who I've been called to be in their lives so they go down the road further. God help me so I can do that well. But that's what privilege and being a parent was look like. When I, when I think of what Jesus has done for me in my story, the immense kindness and patience and grace and mercy he has poured out on me, that is a privilege that has been given to me. So the question is, how do we steward the privilege we have been given in light of what God has done in our stories? And so that's what we're going to chase today. And so I just, I want to pray one more time as we go in, because again, I don't know about you, but I need a lot of help in the journey, which is why we cry out to Jesus, because he's so good. And he's like, I got you. Let's keep going. And so Father, we want to come into this moment and acknowledging some things, acknowledging first and foremost, we need you. We need you to show up. We need you to give us the life that you've promised to us. And thank you that your son comes into the world. And Jesus, when you, you come on the scene, Thank you that you meet us as we are 
and lead us into something better. Thank you that you put your spirit in us to empower us for the life that you have for us. And so as we open up the words of this book, as we look at this letter that was written 2,000 years ago, thank you that this is your words to us. This is truth that sets us free today if we will have ears to hear and to listen. And so Jesus, so often you would say to those who have ears to hear, listen. So give us those ears today that we could hear what you have for us. Don't let us be the same as when we walked in, when we walk out today. Could we know that there's freedom before us because you have spoken to us? Amen. So here we are, chapter two of Romans. And Romans is this book that was written, a letter written by one of the early Christian leaders in the first century, a guy named Paul. Paul, a Jewish follower of Jesus who gave his life to him. He has written this letter in the first century to the Christians living in the city of Rome. And the purpose of the letter is to introduce himself because he hadn't met all of them. And his ultimate goal is that he wants to visit them, spend time with them, help build one another up, and then leverage them to help move him beyond Rome into other parts of the Roman Empire and so he can continue to share the message of Jesus. And so because Paul doesn't necessarily know them all personally, he's writing to them many things about what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? What does it mean to know him and walk with him and follow him? And as we've been seeing, he's been laying the groundwork. Hey, there's good news. The gospel is good news, but we need to understand why it's good news because there's not such good news as part of our story. And that's what we've been walking through in in Romans chapter one that there's been this rejection, this rebellion of God as a race and, and it's brought so much brokenness into our story. And so now as Paul begins in chapter two, as we saw last week, it would be very interesting for somebody to hear what Paul says in Romans one and say, yeah, you get them, Paul. Like those are those people you're talking about. And it's as if Paul anticipated people would think that. So in Romans two, verse one, this is how he starts it right here. He says, hey, you therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. So here's what Paul means. No one gets to say neener, neener, neener in the human race. Like we're all under the indictment. And so now as we get into the second half of chapter two, Paul's anticipating the response of a a very specific kind of person that would hear what Paul would say and say, yeah, Paul, you're right. Those are the bad people, those Gentiles there, but we are special people. We are God's chosen people. So this obviously doesn't apply to us. And now what Paul is gonna say is, oh, but it does. And so here we go, Romans chapter two, verse 17, and he writes this. He says, now, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, which is kind of what the the whole point of being Jewish was, is like, we've been given God's law, the, the 10 commandments, like God showed up in our story and we belong to him and we know him. Paul's now addressing this group of people. And I just want us to grab hold of this for a, for a moment. This is not Paul writing with some kind of anti-Semitic tone or, or sentiment, because remember, Paul is Jewish. So what we're actually reading is first century Jewish literature. And let's not forget that our Messiah and our Savior was Jewish. (laughs) So we have much debt to those who were Jewish who carried the message that far in the story so that now as followers of Jesus, we are now joining the family. And so let's let's just make sure we got that clear, right? So as Paul's talking here, as he's going to maybe sound like he's throwing people under the bus, he's bringing himself into that indictment because he's trying to help them and us understand, hey, this thing I'm talking about, This is more than an ethnic identity. This is a spiritual identity, an identity that comes with privilege that has a purpose and a calling in the story. 
And so look at what he goes on to say. Now, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. So he catches what Paul's helping point out, what he's reminding his fellow Jewish people is this is the purpose God called us to do. He called us to be a people to himself. Our privilege is that we would belong to him, but there was a purpose in that privilege and it was to make God known to the world around us. And so you can chase this throughout the Old Testament as God began to move and he starts in calling people to himself because he wants to work through one group of people on behalf of all people. And so you see this in Genesis 12, one through three. Again, just, you can write this down and read this later. But in Genesis 12, one through three, God comes to this dude named Abram, whose name will be changed to Abraham. Now we know him as the father of the Jewish nation. He's the, the first patriarch. And this is what God says when he comes to Abram. He's, the Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. Something really important to catch there. Hey, Abram, I'm gonna bless you. Like I'm gonna bless you like you could not imagine. But the purpose of that blessing is so that you will be a blessing to people around you. So when God blesses you, it's never just for you. It's for the people around you. And he goes on and he says, I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. Like Abram, I've got your back. <laughs> if you want anyone to have your back, you want the almighty creator of the cosmos. That's a pretty good moment. And he says, all peoples on earth, catch this, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram, I'm bringing privilege into your life and through your offspring and it's with a purpose. And so then you move into the book of Exodus, Exodus 19. If you're familiar with the story where the Israelites had been in, in slavery in Egypt for years, and then God raises Moses up to come and deliver them out of Egypt. And so they go to the mountain and God gives them the law. And this is what God says to Moses about what he wants to do with his people. Then Moses went up to, the, to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, this is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Privilege. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites that from one people, God wanted to create a nation who would be his priests. The purpose of a priest is to represent God on behalf of the people. That through this one group of people, God wanted to make himself known to all people. And so then again, we see this Isaiah 42, verse five through seven. This is what God, the Lord says, the creator of the heavens, who stretches them out, who spreads out the earth with all that springs from it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. To open the eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. Can you catch this? Incredible privilege with a purpose. 
which is what Paul is helping remind them here in chapter two. Hey, this is what we were called to. This is what we were meant to. Here's the privilege that it means to be God's people in this world. Yet it came with a purpose. And so he goes on now and back in Romans two, verse 21. He says, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? Like the point is like, hey, if God has revealed the truth of what he desires and what he wants from us, the human race, and he's given it to us, that, that which we are meant to teach others, are we not also supposed to teach ourselves those same things? Like, because what do you call someone who says to do this and doesn't do it? Hypocrite. He's like, like what, have we been hypocritical? And so he goes on with this run of rhetorical questions now that are incredibly pointed and incisive, because look at what he says. You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? He's calling them out because they did not live up to the purpose for which they were privileged. Like if you know the stories in the Old Testament and you watch the journey of the Israelites and God's people from the time of wandering in the wilderness to the time of the kings and the judges and all these things, how did they do at fulfilling their mission? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it depends on where we're looking and whose story, right? But you see this generational, like, like God is awesome. And then like, forget you, God, we want to do our own thing. And it's just like back and forth, back and forth. And they get to this point where Paul's like, guys, we dropped the ball. We didn't steward our privilege well. We messed up. And so he goes on and he says, as it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Like we were meant to make his name great. We made his name a mockery. And you almost feel like the weight, the burden in Paul's writing here because he's speaking to his people. It's Obi-Wan crying out to Anakin. You were the chosen one. Why did you mess it up? I'm a nerd. Just go with me on that reference. (laughs) It's like we were meant to be special for a purpose, to make God known. But instead, we made him a joke. And here we are saying, but we're special and we're not under the indictment that the rest of the world is under. And so then Paul pokes at one of the reasons why they would say they were special. He goes on, verse 25, he says this. He says, circumcision has value if you observe the law. But if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. And like, like, Paul, what are you talking about, like circumcision? Like, what do you mean? Like, my daughters are taking health class. They're like, dad, this is weird. And I'm like, yeah, I I was a kid. I don't know, right? We're like, why why does this happen? It's like, well, it's it's a throwback to old religious tradition, because when God showed up to Abram and said, I'm going to make you into a people all to myself, and he's like, Abraham, I'm going to give you a sign that you belong to me, that you're my special people, so that wherever you go, all people will know that this group belongs to me. And you got to wonder, Abraham's like, all right, what is the sign, God? And he's like, well, <laughs> we're going to call it circumcision. And I, I mean, I just got to imagine if I'm there, if I'm Abraham, I'm like, can we just get tattoos? I don't know, like all the cool kids are getting tattoos, right? Like maybe that would be like, you know, and I think like, God, like you see in the Old Testament, God says don't do that because a lot of what they were doing in that day, they were getting got tattooed as part of demonic worship. And so he's like, no, I want you to stand out. I want you to look like the cool kids. I want you to look like my kids. Now, I don't think there's anything wrong with getting a tattoo today unless you got it to worship demons, then that's another thing, right? 
But I think like, what, what, like, Paul, like no, this is going to set you apart. No one else will be marked like this. Trust me. <laughs> and so there they go. This, was, this now became a badge of honor to mark them as a people. It's kind of like uh, I was a Boy Scout for almost the whole summer once. I remember like going through that summer and then my, my scoutmaster kept saying like, Joel, you need to get some more elbow grease and it took me years to figure out what he was talking about. But part of being a Boy Scout was that you would get these merit badges. You would achieve certain things. And so I remember that whole summer, like all I wanted to do was start the campfire. And he's like, no, you haven't gotten your like fire merit badge. And my friends that had their banner and they got their fire badge, they're like, we can make the fire. We're privileged. We can do this, right? I mean, this is kind of the idea like, hey, circumcision was your merit badge. Like you were meant to do something good with it. But here's the problem. You didn't do what you were supposed to do. And so he goes on and he says, verse 26, so then if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? And and for his audience to hear this, this is like mind blowing. Like, no, no, like circumcision is what it's about. And Paul's like, no, it was about something deeper going on inside the heart. Like you thought it was about to get the merit badge. You got the fire merit badge, but you burned the forest down. And now there are people over here who are starting campfires, bringing light to the world, and they're not circumcised. They don't have the merit badge, but they're doing it right. And so Paul goes on. He says, the one who is not circumcised physically yet obeys the law will condemn you who, even though you have the written code and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. I mean, this is like, this is not like polite Hallmark card writing. Like Paul's just challenging them in their thinking in this moment. And it, it kind of begs the question, as you say, Paul, you say the one who is doing this, that, that there's, there's a kind of person who isn't physically circumcised, yet they're obeying what God desires. Like they're somehow being the covenant people, but they're not the circumcised people. Who are you talking about? And Paul doesn't tell us right here in Romans 2. He's going to tell us in Romans 3, we're going to get there. Hopefully not within like three months, but we'll get there. But let's just do some spiritual math because I think we can tease out what Paul's talking about here in this moment. Because let's not forget who's writing this right now. This is Paul who was about as Jewish as you could get. Paul who was like an elite religious pharisaical leader in his day. He was the the best. Like if you want to talk about merit badges, he had them all. And then one day he meets Jesus and his life has changed forever. Partly because he meets Jesus after Jesus was dead, and then he realizes, oh, you're not dead. I'm on the wrong side. And then when Jesus shows up, Jesus calls him to be a part of his movement. And when he meets Jesus, he realizes he has now encountered the Messiah, the promised one, the one that God said would bring hope and life to the world. Paul's life is radically transformed by the light of the world who's come, this Prince of Peace, this King of Kings, this Lord of Lords who shows up in a story and doesn't smite him. He invites him to be on his team. Like how amazing that moment was. And then as Paul begins to follow Jesus, Paul begins to experience what Jesus said he would do to those who would follow after him. In John 14 and John 16, Jesus promised that he would send another, an advocate who would come to be a part of the story as we step into new life with him, that the Holy Spirit of God would come and be a part of our stories. He would teach us and guide us and lead us in all truth because he would be in us. And Jesus is fulfilling God's promise in Ezekiel 36 where God is speaking to his people. He's coming to his people and he's like, you are a hot mess. You have not been able to do this for generations. So I will do it because I love you. 
and I will remove from you your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit in you to move you to follow and obey the things I've called you to. See, Paul suddenly realizes the merit badges were pointless. I've encountered the spirit of God because the Messiah has shown up. I know who Jesus is. It's not about my ethnic identity. It's about being brought back into a spiritual identity, that which I was created for because of Jesus. So that's who Paul's talking about. So that's why he'll go on now in verse 28 and say, a person is not a Jew who is, only, who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. This is about a spiritual identity as we step into a new life with Jesus. This is what God has done. This is a privileged identity of belonging to him and realizing that there's a purpose and a calling on life, which is now to reveal God to a world lost in darkness. So do you understand? This is why Jesus says in Matthew 5, as a Jewish teacher to a Jewish audience, he says the words, you are the light of the world. Because that's what we were meant to be. This is what the calling and the fulfillment was. So this is what we're now called to do, to take the spiritual privilege and live it out as followers of Jesus. And so Paul ends this chapter with these words, such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. The reason that they're getting approval and praise from God is because they're now living out the purpose of their privilege. And they realize that that purpose of being privileged is to live for God's glory, not my own. To make God known and live for that. And so what, what do we do with this idea of what Paul's talking about here? Because if we're understanding what he's saying, the purpose of Israel in the past is now the purpose of his church in the present that we have now been brought into a spiritual identity. We've been grafted into this family that God wants. And so now through the church, Jewish and Gentile, all coming together by the power of the Holy Spirit, we have been given a privileged status that we now need to steward well. And that privilege is a beautiful thing to belong to him and be a part of what he's doing in this world. And yet if we're not careful, privilege can mess you up especially if you lose sight of the reason why you have been privileged. Like if we get taken with ourselves in our privilege, instead of being taken with the one who has blessed us, we can fall into all sorts of traps. Like there are some serious pitfalls that we see. We see it all throughout the Old Testament scriptures, some serious pitfalls that can happen. So let, let, let me, Gen Xers in the room. How many of you, let me see, where's my people? Gener, Generation X. Wow. Three of us, love it. <laughs> the three of us in the room will remember this moment. One of the greatest video games of all time on the Atari game system, Pitfall. Oh, now you are. Now, now you're proud. Oh, yeah, yeah, all right, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm, well, maybe you didn't want to date yourself. That's, that's cool, I appreciate that. But like circa 1982, this is one of the greatest games ever created by the human race. I mean, just look at how incredible those graphics are. Back then, it was phone. That looks like a kindergartner drew, right? But this was one of the coolest games to play because the purpose of Pitfall was simple. It's a scroller game. You just got to move across and not fall in the pits. Avoid the traps. Avoid the alligators. Avoid the things. And it was the funnest game to play. And I've tried to explain this to my daughters because like, they live in a new generation with new technology. It's like, hey, back in the day, this was it. 
And what was really cool about the game Pitfall is that if you could achieve the goal, if you could avoid the pits, if you could get the high score, you'd get to the screen that would show up, that would just say that you're awesome, you're a winner. And then what you would do is you would go and stand next to your TV and someone would take a picture of you. <laughs> and if it was a Polaroid, you'd have that in like 90 seconds. Otherwise you had to find a one hour photo place or you had to mail in your, your phone and then you would get a physical picture and then you would write a letter and put it in a physical envelope, and you would mail it to Atari. And then in time, Atari would send you a certificate that says you're awesome. <laughs> and it was like, like it was, so I didn't have an Atari growing up because it just wasn't our family thing, but my cousins did. And every holiday, we'd be over at my cousin's house, and it's like, hey, how are you? Can we play Atari? Hey, how are you? Can we play Atari? Like, that was all I wanted to do because I desperately wanted to win the game. I desperately wanted to get the glory, and I never did. But I was there when my cousin Amy did. And she achieved it. And she, we're like, we're going crazy. And so she goes and stands for the TV and, and my aunt is taking a picture of her. And I just kind of walk up. Like, can, I, can I just share in your glory, Amy? Can I, I know it was you, but can I just be a part of the moment with you? Because like, I so desperately wanted to do it well. What if the goal of privilege, of winning, is to steward our privilege in such a way that we make God look good and we avoid the pitfalls. I think we have to be aware that there are serious pitfalls that privilege brings that if we're not careful, we can fall into those traps, just like we see Israel doing time and time again in their story. And so I just wanna talk about a couple of, of pitfalls that privilege can bring so that we can maybe be mindful of this to avoid them so that we can begin to learn how to steward our privilege well as followers of Jesus. And so here's the first privilege pitfall I think we need to be careful of. Boasting in the wrong things. Like, have you ever known somebody who was really good at something and they made sure you and everyone else knew they were really good at? And those are fun people, right? Like, don't elbow them if you're sitting next to them, but like you could say later, he was talking about you. Um, but I think it's very easy to misunderstand the goodness that God has given us and somehow think it's about us and somehow get taken with ourselves. And they're like, go to Jesus and like, Jesus, how awesome are you to have me on your team? That's dangerous. See, I mean, there, there's, when, here's, what's, here's what we've got to be careful. There, there's, there's something important about this. Um, let me just say something to you that might be the most spiritually profound thing you need to understand about following Jesus. It's not about you. It's not about you. It has never been, nor will it ever be, be about you. And let me tell you, there are, there's freedom in those words. Because everything God has done, everything Jesus did is absolutely for you. But it's not about you. And the reason there's freedom in those words is because when we make it about us, we either live in arrogance and misliving the life we were created for, or we live with inferiority and fear and insecurity because we don't think we can. And I think what we have to recognize is like, hey, I, I, I just need to realize this isn't about me. And so I can step into the things that you want me to do. And I'm not taken with myself or I'm not hung up on myself. Like so many times in my journey, like, like I wrestle with either getting too much of myself or being afraid because I don't think I can. And I think, like, I'm, like, I think I've had to wrestle this out with God and Jesus is like, I've, I'm not hung up on who you are because it's not about you. So step into the things that I'm calling you to and trust that I'm with you and I'll empower you to do it. And then watch what I want to do with your life. Stop boasting in the wrong things. It's not about you. You've been set free. Here's another privilege pitfall that we have to be careful of. 
It's comparing ourselves to others. I don't know about you, but I have two quick solutions to help me when I don't feel good about me. First one is pretty simple. I just go into the closet and I turn off the lights and then I suddenly look really good. (laughs) Somebody like hooted at the 9 a.m. I'm like, oh, you play that game too. (laughs) But the darker way that I will try to make myself feel good when I'm not feeling good about myself is I will just look at somebody who's messier than me and just say, there's the bad one. I'm not them. Whew. I can feel really good about myself when I can point out your mess. It's a dangerous game because I think we miss then what God wants to do in our stories. Jesus tells a very powerful story about this in Luke 18, 9 through 14. You can read it on your own, but it's just this powerful story that he's helping us understand kind of like who does God respond to when we come to him in prayer? And so there's this story like these two guys go to the temple to pray. One would be this religious elite, a Pharisaical guy, and the other would be what Jesus describes as just a sinner. And so they go to the temple to pray. And so this is how the religious guy prays, the Pharisee, a guy like who Paul was. He goes into the temple to pray, and this is his prayer. God, thank you that I'm not like other men. God, thank you that I'm not like this dude over here who's got problems and issues, this sinner who's praying. Thank you that I'm awesome. That's the gist of his prayer. And then Jesus describes how the other guy prays. The guy described as the sinner goes into the prayer and he falls on his knees and he beats his chest and he says, God, have mercy on me. And then it's amazing. The punchline that Jesus says is, I'll tell you, it's the sinner who goes out justified in God's eyes, not the righteous dude. And the reason why is that the, the Pharisee can't actually experience God's help because he doesn't know he needs it. It's the guy who is genuinely praying and crying out for help that realizes, God, I need help in my story. Would you show up? And God's like, yeah, that's why I'm here. I've just been waiting for you to ask. You don't have to hide this from me anymore. And there's something powerful that we can learn from that as we avoid these privileged pitfalls. But I think we've got to recognize, like, it's not about boasting. Like, it's not that we're not meant to boast, okay? It's that we've got to learn to boast in the right things. I love what Jeremiah writes about this, Jeremiah 9, 23 through 24. It says, let not the wise boast of their wisdom or the strong boast of their strength or the rich boast of their riches, but let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for in these I delight, declares the Lord. Like, hey, as far as Jesus, we should be the most braggy people in the world. We're just not bragging about ourselves. We're bragging about the one who's done something great in our stories. We're pointing people to him. And it's also that, that we've got to be careful of this pitfall of not comparing ourselves. Because again, the, the goal isn't to not compare yourself. It's to compare yourself to the right person, the one that you want to belong to and be with. Because look what Paul will say about this in Philippians 3, 2 through 8. He says, watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. Okay, who's Paul talking about? So, so let's go back. Remember the whole circumcision conversation in Romans 2? He's addressing this issue that was taking place for the early Christians because the early Christians were this combination of Jews that came to follow Jesus and Gentiles that discovered that same hope in Jesus. But there was a lot of tension as they were coming together because there were some on the Jewish side of the equation that, that they would become called Judaizers is what they were called that would say to these Gentiles, hey, it's awesome that you want to follow Jesus with this, but you got to become a Jew first. So step up, snip, snip because they were calling them to, like, can you, what an evangelistic obstacle to overcome. 
You're like, hey, let's have an altar call. All right, let's find Jesus. You're going to come up and you're going to pray to him and you're just going to step in this room over here and don't ask too many questions. <laughs> like, like, what are we doing? And so early on, the followers of Jesus who were primarily Jewish, they recognized that, hey, the circumcision thing wasn't what saved us. It was our savior. So why would we impose the burden on them instead of helping them find the freedom in Jesus? And so there, there's a, so Paul's like warning them, hey, there are going to be people that are going to tell you that you have to perform, you have to jump through the hoops, you have to be religious. He's like, it's not about that. He goes, for it is we who are the circumcision, who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. And I love this because Paul's like, you want to play the game? Let's play the game. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regards to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Boom, here's my 4.0. What do you got? This is what he's doing. And then look at what he says next. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. You understand Paul's privilege? Paul's privilege was not in his pedigree. It was in the fact that he knew and belonged to Jesus and he just wanted to know him more. So much so that I will lose all of my cred in this world if it means I belong to him. And I love this idea and so that's the point of privilege. What is the point of privilege then? If it's like, here's the pitfalls, that's good. Let's, let's, but the goal is not simply to avoid things. The goal is to live for something good. Like you look back in Romans 2 when Paul's talking about all those questions and he's like, hey, if you consider yourself a teacher, if you consider that you have God's truth, if you consider that you're a light in the world, like that is actually a good thing. Like what a privilege to be able to reflect God to a lost and broken world. That's the positive view of what he's calling out. So the question is then, as followers of Jesus, how do we steward that privilege? Because that's the calling on us. Now, here's the thing. I don't want to assume that everyone here today would be a follower of Jesus or that you would consider yourself that. Like, maybe you were going to breakfast with your friend, and then they, they dragged you here, and you're like, ha-ha, and you're, like, and you're like, we're going to have words later. <laughs> you know, maybe you're just like you're that faithful spouse that's standing with your partner because you want to support them, but you're like, this isn't my thing. You know, maybe you're here because you're just like, you're just hoping that they'll like you and they'll like you more than Jesus. And you're just hoping to get it. I don't know what, what, whatever reason that you're here right now, I just want you to know you're so welcome. Like you are welcome to sit in and discover what God has, because here's what I want you to realize. There's a God who is pursuing you and wants to bring you into new life. And my hope is that your time with us, you get a glimpse of that. You get caught up in that. And maybe you realize that there's a life for you beyond what the world is offering. And for those of us that have stepped into that, who have experienced that, those of us who would say that we're followers of Jesus, do you know what I mean when I say that? Like you, you, you've experienced God show up in your story. Like you would say, once I was lost, but now I'm found. Once I was in darkness, now I'm in the light. Once there was brokenness and pain in my story. Once I was abused, but I've been healed. I've been set free. I've been given something new. Jesus has shown up in my story. My family in the past no longer defines me. The shame of brokenness no longer owns me. I have been set free. I'm a child of God. Do you understand what I'm talking about? That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to be set free. Would you not say, if that is you, that you are privileged? privileged to belong to him 
and to be loved by him and to be called into life with him. And it's not a privilege that says I'm better than anyone else. It's a privilege that says I'm better than I was because look at what he's doing in my story. And so the question is, what do we do with that? The purpose of that, what do we do with the spiritual privilege we've been given? Is it not to know God and make God known? So what kind of signpost are you in this world? What kind of signpost are you that points people to the one who can do the incredible, the impossible, the amazing in another story? Like, how does your story reveal the goodness of God? How does your story reveal God's mercy, God's grace, God's kindness, God's patience, God's gentleness, God's incredible love for people like all of us? Like, how does your life help someone else realize that if he could do it for you, maybe there's hope in my story too? See, that's what we're meant to be, these signposts. And so let's chase this. Let's talk about how do we leverage our privilege as followers of Jesus so that we don't wind up making the same mistake Paul's calling out for his own people in the end of Romans 2. And let's chase this by talking about some things that privilege doesn't do. Because if we can understand what privilege doesn't do, maybe it helps us understand what we can do with our privilege. And so here's the first thing, three things. First thing privilege doesn't do is this. Privilege doesn't hide the mess. You know, that's what we tend to do, right? Like even on the other side of grace and forgiveness and God's transformation, I still like to to use all the filters. I still like to present the better version of me than the one that's a work in progress, right? So I'll I'll take the the selfie, you know, and they're like, I'm awesome. I mean, Jesus is awesome. Cool, right? Like, and I use all the filters in doing that. Have you ever noticed that when God uses people in the Bible, the people that God uses, have you ever noticed that he always uses messed up people? Have you ever wondered, like, God, why do you do that? And, and I think the reason why is, what choice did he have? <laughs> right? Like, like, it says there's no one righteous. God's like, well, I'm stuck with you. <laughs> I think the better question is, why didn't God hide the mess? Like, did the PR department in heaven screw up? Or is God showing us hope for our story? If you can use them, maybe you can use me. That maybe the point of this is for God to recognize that his goodness is always greater than our messiness. I love what Paul writes here in 1 Timothy 1, 15 through 16. This is Paul. We were reading some of his, his writings in Romans. And here, this is great about Paul's writing to Timothy here in 1 and 2 Timothy's letters. This is, this is the older leader writing to his protege. This is the mentor writing to the mentee. So I don't know if like, if you were to go on Amazon or find a real bookstore and you go in like the leadership section, here's what you're gonna find. Here's why I'm awesome and here's why my five tips can help grow your business or have a better life. So this is what I would expect Paul to write to his protege as the older leader. And so look at what he says. Hey, Timothy, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save people like me because I'm awesome. Eleven, are you awake? Is that what he says? No, what does he say? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. 
Timothy, if he could do it for me, he could do it for anyone. And so here's my story on full display so that people can see that there's hope for their story. And parents, like, don't miss this. Don't miss this as you seek to raise your kids, whether they're young or teenagers or even still trying to have influence on your adult kids. Don't miss this. Your kids don't, don't need to see you attempting to be a perfect version. The greatest gift that you can give your kids is to show them the real you who is chasing Jesus. Because I'm telling you, they know you're not perfect already. And the greatest gift that you could give them is here's how somebody who's a work in progress is seeking to pursue Jesus. I have two amazing daughters and I like, feel like God has just really blessed us with some kind of a dynamic early on in our family that we just have a lot of honest conversations together. Sometimes to the point that it's annoying because I don't always like the honesty that's coming back to me, but <laughs> we're figuring it out. So when we, when we moved back to California back in 2020, we moved into like, like we had to purge everything that we own in Canada and just drive one car and start over. So we moved into a small apartment to get set up. And then after two years, we started renting this house in Northern California and we needed to buy a dining room table because we didn't have one yet. And you know, it's kind of nice to set at a table with people versus on the floor. So Christy, my wife, Christy, she finds this amazing table on Facebook Marketplace. It's just this gorgeous table, and it's like right at our budget point of what we wanted to spend. And in the picture, it's got these beautiful six chairs that come with it. And I'm like, okay, let's, let's do this. And so she contacts the family, and they say like, oh, no, it's just the table, not the chairs. And now I'm like, why would you put the chairs in the picture? Like, what do you, like, I feel tricked, all this stuff. So like, I'm, now I'm dealing with my own issues in this moment. And, and I just, I, like, I, I'm like, Chrissy, I, I just, we're not going to spend all the money on a table. Like, we need chairs, and I know it's gorgeous, and it's like what you really want for the home but I don't think we can do it. And like God has blessed me with a gracious wife who puts up with my stupid nose. Not nose, like N-O, like that. Like, <laughs> like, uh, like, like she'll, in the name of love, she'll let me be wrong. You understand? Like it's amazing that she'll do this for me. God has also gifted me with very strong children. <laughs> and so we kind of got through that moment and Christy was disappointed, but like, okay, like we'll find, we'll find it. And so I'm sitting now and I'm playing video games and my youngest daughter, she's 13 at the time, she comes and sits with me and, and I think she's coming to watch how awesome dad is at Pitfall, but uh, she's just very intensely staring at me and I kind of look like annoyingly, like, what are you doing? Like, this is video game time. And, and she just says these words to me, dad, mom is really upset about the table. <laughs> and she brought the tone, she brought it all in that moment. And the subtext of that is, dad, you're wrong. You're getting it wrong. You're not doing the right thing by mom. Inside, all sorts of feelings. One of those feelings was, who do you think you are, 13-year-old <laughs> child, to talk to father like this? And as I'm wrestling with these feelings, it's just like God kind of broke in and whispered, she's not wrong. So we have this awesome glass table that we got on Facebook Marketplace. <laughs> and over time, as budget allowed, we added chairs to it. But as I reflect on that time, I love that at 13, she could come to me and call me out, even though I'm dead. Because we had created enough of a rapport that somewhere in the journey, she knew that I wasn't always right. And that there was this freedom to be able to raise one's hand. Like, like, we got some very good advice from wise people that had raised kids before us, and they're like, hey, when you realize you've made a mistake with your kids, come and let them know and apologize because they already know you made the mistake. 
And so like early on, like, like when we're bringing discipline into the situation or whatever it was, and, and it's like I was, I was more harsh. Like the discipline was right, but I was more harsh than it needed to be. I would come and find, like as we're sitting on timeout, and I'm like, you're still on timeout, but <laughs> I'm sorry in how I approach this moment with you. And what that did is it just created this dynamic in our family where they realized that dad's just a work in progress. And I can raise my hand and talk to dad, but you know what else that's done for them? they know what to do with their own work in progress. They know what to do when they realize that they've messed it up and that they don't have to hide it and they can come and ask for help. Like that's a beautiful gift. Like we shouldn't hide the mess. And it's not just if if we have kids as parents, this is just the gift we give to people around us. People don't need to see our filters. What people need to see is that even in our mess, there's a God who's greater, who has hope and mercy on us so that they could have the hope that maybe that could be true for them too. And so give the real you to the people around you, a work in progress, and watch what God wants to do in your story. You don't have to have it all figured out. You don't have to have it all put together. You just have to be honest with the one who's at work in your story. That's a gift that we can give one another. Something else that privilege doesn't do as we talk about this. Privilege doesn't fight for dominance. Here's what I mean. Um, Fighting for dominance is what happens whenever we feel threatened because that threat triggers some sense of insecurity in us. So let me me just ask a, a cultural moment question. Anyone here wrestling with some insecurities about what we're experiencing in our broader cultural context in the moment that's going on? Like the world seems to be getting a little crazy. Things are happening. You're like, I don't know where my place is in this anymore. I feel like I'm losing my sense of identity, even as an American. What are anyone here? Feel, is it just me? A few of us? Yeah. Like I get nervous ordering at Starbucks because I'm like, I don't know how to say the right words anymore just to get my latte, right? Like, like there's this sense in which that's going on. And I think the question for us as followers of Jesus, where does our ultimate sense of security and identity come from? Like, does it come from the privileges afforded to us by the state or does it come from someone greater than the state? Because stop and think about this. There are Christians all over the world and for 2,000 years there have been Christians in this world who have not had the benefit and the privilege of the freedoms we've had in this nation. And yet they have followed God faithfully and served him well. Now, don't get me wrong. I am grateful for the time I'm in. I'm grateful for the freedoms of this country. I am grateful for those who have worn the uniform to protect this country. I'm grateful for the men and women who wear the badge and the shield to keep us safe. Thank you. But I think what we have to recognize is that our hope is in something greater. So your ultimate identity and security does not come from a flag or even a country. Our ultimate sense of identity and security comes from a king whose kingdom is not of this world. And yet I think the reason we wrestle with this as Americans is because as Americans, we are just naturally rights-driven. So when someone violates my right, whoo, I become patriotic fast. I had to explain this to the Canadians because they don't understand this. I'm like, well, you've voted yourself into a country. Like, we have this memory of the Redcoats coming all the time, right? So we're like, oh, like we gotta, like that's just who we are, right? We're so rights-driven. And, and if we're not careful, that can actually mess up our discipleship of Jesus. 
And so I think here's a litmus test for us as followers of Jesus and how we are stewarding our privilege in our context. How do you respond when your rights have been trampled on? Because when that happens, it's, it's more than deeper than just I feel offended. It's that there's something in me that is awakened that I feel threatened. I feel insecure. I feel like I will lose my country. I will lose my place in the culture. There's something going on in me that's deeper, right? When my rights have been trampled on, there's a how dare they, how dare you response that's in me. So how do you respond? Like, do we fight for dominance in those moments because we feel threatened? Or do we look to the one in whom we find our ultimate identity and security because we belong to him? Because remember what Jesus said about those who would belong to him? He said, I hold them in my hand and no one will snatch them away from me. There is no government in the world that can take us out of the hands of Jesus, even if they take Jesus out of the country. And that is where our hope is. And so how do we respond in this moment? How do we leverage our privileges, our identity as followers of Jesus? It's because we belong to him. And so at some level, it's like, okay, take away my rights. Take the country if you want it. Because I belong to the one whose kingdom is not of this world. And he has promised to prepare a place for me and to come back for me. And my home is with him. It's not here. And so how do we respond? Maybe we need to learn from our king what he calls us to do in those moments when we are hurt, attacked, or threatened. Look at what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 43 to 48. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, kill your enemies when they get in your way. <laughs> I wish Jesus had said that. It would have been so much easier. No, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. You're saying we're, we're never more like dad than we're learning to love the way dad loves this world. And here's, here's the hope that we have in dad. God is dad. Is that God does God not simply look at the world and say, ah, oh, God's gonna deal with this world. God's going to bring justice into this equation. God's going to bring the, like he's going to turn the wrongs into right. Like that's why God says vengeance is mine. Like you're not capable of handling. I'll deal with it. Here's what I want you to be. I want you to be like me and how you choose to love the world the way I still love the world, even though it's broken. Right? So Jesus says about God, he says, he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And, I, and I, what Jesus isn't saying is like you have to get it right all the time. Perfect in, in the Greek, this is where teleos, it means like be that which you were intended to be. Be that which you had been purposed to be. So our, our desire, our hope as followers of Jesus is how do I become more like who you've created me? How do I become more like God who I was created to reflect? And so help me to do this because I don't do this well. Help me to follow you well in my story. Help me to do what you want as I follow you in this moment. But here's something really cool that privilege doesn't do. The third thing, privilege doesn't run from threats. See, while we don't fight for dominance, at the same time, we also don't run from threats. 
Right? Because like, is that all you can do? That's all you got? I belong to a king and he promised me resurrection. So you're going to take my life? Whoa, I have eternal life. I'm not looking forward if that's the moment that comes, but hey, I have a hope that transcends your terror because I have a hope in eternal life that's coming my way. And so we stand for what is right and what is good and what is true, even when it costs us. I remember when I was in school, uh, one of our professors in seminary just asked us this question. He's like, as followers of Jesus, as people who are disciples of Jesus, should we ever shed blood for our beliefs? It's like a heavy question. But we were all in our young 20s, so we knew everything. So he just let us wax eloquent for like 30 minutes in the class, just going back and forth. And then after we kind of wound up and ended it, he said, Here, let me tell you what I think the answer to the question is. He said, absolutely, we should shed blood for our beliefs, and the blood that we should shed should always only ever be our own. Because that's what our Savior did for us. Man, that's heavy. Now, now does that mean I'm a pacifist? I don't know. Jesus says to turn the other cheek. I get that. I appreciate that. But I'm telling you, if I walk out of this place and I see a child being hurt by an adult, I am going to step up. I'm going to stop that moment. Thank God for the strong people in this world who will step up and stop the evil. So I don't always know what that dance looks like. But if it's my cheek being struck, I'm called to turn it. If your cheek, I'm going to stand up for you. And we're going to figure this out together. But here's, I think, what we need to recognize in this time that we don't run from threats. Because we've been called to stand for something good in this world, even if it costs us to do it. In our life group right now, uh, we just launched a new group this last fall, and it's super fun. We've got a lot of our, our single friends are in this group coming out of the singles ministry here at Rocky Peak. And so we'll gather every week and meet. And there's about three or four of our friends in this group that are teachers right now. Man, what they're having to navigate is incredible. In the, in the school systems as they are. Having kids in the school system is hard enough. Being a teacher in the school system as they're trying to figure out how do I represent Jesus? How do I stand for him and not cower and cave to the culture as it is? How do I serve these kids well, yet I'm still called to have to represent a system that I'm in disagreement with? Let me tell you, it's not always easy for us to figure out what the answers are to that. Let me tell you, if you're looking for hope in the story, read Daniel right now. Daniel 1 through 6, the stories of him as he's living in Babylon in that day and how he's trying to figure out how to honor God. But let me tell you something beautiful that happens every Tuesday night in our home. We come and we share the stories of the challenge of what we're walking through. And then we pray for each other and we encourage each other. And if anyone has taken hits that week, we lift each other up and then we go back out into the world to represent Jesus and to pay the price when it comes. And then we come back to our group on Tuesday night and we ask, how are you? Here's what's going on. Here's the challenge. Here's the struggle. And we pray for each other and we support each other and we lift each other up so that we can do it again and again and again and again. Because you know what happens when the world experiences a group of people that get knocked down and get back up a thousand times? They begin to ask questions. I thought we ended you. Why are you still here? I thought we dealt with this in Rome with the lions. I don't understand history in this moment. We hurt you and you show up and you love. Maybe I need to learn something because you have a strength I've never seen before. And in a world that is brutal right now, cancel culture is fierce. To find a group of people that don't cancel but forgive, that's going to be hope. That's gospel. That's the gift we're going to give to the world in this time. This is our gift in this cultural moment. So I love what Peter says about this. First Peter 3, 13 through 16. 
He says, who is going to harm you if you were eager to do good? <laughs> I don't know, Peter. I can get a list. I can think of quite a few people. And yet here's Peter. He's writing this in the Roman Empire. Peter, who will be martyred for his faith in Jesus. He's the one writing these words. And look at what it says, but even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Remember what Jesus said about this in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are, blessed are. Blessed are you if you're persecuted for righteousness' sake, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. So he goes on, he says, do not fear their threats, do not be frightened, but in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. That means that we have one declaration, Christ is Lord. This is why the Christians in the first century got in trouble, because they would not say Caesar is Lord. They would say Christ is Lord. And so for three centuries, they were thrown to the lions. But you know what happened after three centuries? They turned the empire. You can knock us down, but you can't take us out. We're going to show up, and we're going to be the people of God wherever we're at. And you may hurt us individually, but collectively we will win because we we belong to the one who is Lord, and we stand with him, and we stand for him. And we walk in that hope. And so he says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander because you're going to wear them down. You're going to annoy them into the kingdom. (laughs) And see, privilege, it doesn't hide or run or fight. Instead, we share our story because ours is a gospel story. We love our enemies because Jesus has already won the fight. And we show up in the places where it's hard. We stand firm in our faith even when it costs us because ours is an unshakable hope. And see, if the purpose of privilege is to point to the one who is the hope of the world, here's the question to end the day with. Who are you repping today? I accidentally rep all sorts of people and all sorts of things. I'm wearing New Balance in an Atari shirt right now. That's easy. But it's not always easy to rep him, is it? I think this is why Jesus said, hey, count the cost. But then when you begin to walk with him, you realize, Jesus, this is hard, but wow, you're always worth it. The life you've given me, the life you're calling me into, the hope set before me. And see, as you realize your privilege in belonging to Jesus, do not forget that you are a son or a daughter of the king. And wherever you go, you go in the power of his name. You are on mission. You have a purpose in this world. You have a privilege that is meant to shine a light of hope to the people around you. And there is a day coming where we will get to stand in the greatest moment we could have ever dreamed of. When I was eight, nine, ten years old, the greatest thing I could ever have hoped to dream of was to stand with my cousin Amy next to the TV and bask in her glory. And yet there's a promise of a day coming where we will get to stand with the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, and bask in his glory. Look at what Paul says here, Colossians 3, 1 through 4. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. Don't get distracted by the shiny things. Don't back down because of the scary things. Live for the greater thing. 
For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Friends, we got a photo op coming that's gonna outweigh whatever moment we're facing today. And so eyes up, look beyond today. Live for today for that moment and let it transform how you work and live and walk today so that we don't make the mistake that Paul's calling out in Romans 2. Instead, we take the privilege we've been given and we steward it well for the sake of the world around us so that others will step into the story because in us they see the hope of something greater. We have empty chairs in this room every weekend. Let's not let them be empty for long. Lord Jesus, thank you so much that you have done a work in our lives, that you have come to bring us into the hope of something new. There is incredible privilege that comes in belonging to you, so don't let us lose sight of that. Let us realize that that privilege comes with a purpose to honor you, to walk with you, to make you known in this world. And so we want to shine bright for your name's sake, not because we are perfect, but we are in process to become that which we were meant to be. And so we walk together in the hope of who you are for the sake of the world, for the sake of those around us. So don't let us miss our moment to be your people in this world. Amen.